0: What is up? Thank you for joining us for another episode in the TRP podcast. We are continuing our sermon series on James the Sage, which is a look at the book of James, if the title wasn't clear enough for you. And this is week five. We'll be looking at... Uh, A relatively well-known passage for various reasons. Um, Most, I would say, most of James is things that we have heard before, but I'm going to try to unpack a little bit of this particular passage for us in this week's talk. I'm going to be reading from James chapter 1 beginning in verse 12. It says, "'Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial.'" Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full-grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all he created. The word of God for the people of God. Now, if this is your first week joining us, if you've been with us either in person or watching online or if you've listened to some of these podcasts and you've failed to memorize everything that I've said over the past few weeks, which, side note, shame, shame on you. Shame on you for not doing that. Uh, But if that happens to be the case, let's review for a little bit just to get our bearings. Okay, so the review of, of what we have looked at is this. James, the brother of Jesus, has taken on the mantle of a sage and is instructing Jewish Christians in the way of Jesus. This does not mean that James is quoting Jesus, but rather James has internalized Jesus's wisdom, and as a sage does, is now repackaging this wisdom for his specific audience to meet their needs in a specific context. I've been arguing over the last few weeks that the context of the audience to whom James is writing is one of economic exploitation or economic injustice. That's why the book of James has so much to say about the rich and the poor. We looked at some of that last week. It it seems to be at the forefront of the trials of many kinds that James's audience is facing, and James has been encouraging his readers that if they need wisdom to ask for it, and God will give it generously with a single-minded focus, and God will give without grudge, and that really has more to do with the lives that they live, not the intelligence that they attain. To accrue wisdom is about living a life of Justice and peace and love, which makes sense because the trials the community is facing is testing their resolve to respond with violence and bitterness. James has also encouraged his readers to see their poverty as an opportunity for boasting. The rich he says will be brought low, and all of this brings us up to this point here and and actually i'm gonna s i'm gonna need you to stick with me here, because I'm going to piece together an argument, an argument that is based on the Greek language, okay? James is doing some interesting things here by piecing uh, his teachings together, and as we see how this unfolds, we're going to have to sort of step into the world of a biblical interpreter of the Greek language to see what it is that James is doing. Doesn't that sound exciting? I I know. I, you might be on a treadmill. You're riding in your car. I don't know where you're getting this podcast, but for the next few minutes, we're, we're going to be biblical scholars, okay? And I'm going to try to present uh, this information in a way that makes sense but also allows us to make some some decisions okay so here we go i don't know if when i was reading our text for this week if if you felt this way but on the surface the verses they they seem really random right it seems like they're not connected at all first you have this blessing in verse 12 blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. And then, in the very next verse, according to the NIV, James launches into this diatribe on temptation. He says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil. And this is where a lot of folks would say that James is just this random collection of wisdom sayings that are not connected to each other in any meaningful way. Scholars Uh, fight tooth and nail over the structure of James because it just seems like it's a bunch of disparate um, sayings it would be like you're you're eating at a, a Chinese restaurant and at the end of the meal you get your fortune cookie and you go around the table and you each read your fortune and they're very much not connected and that is what some people would say is what's happening in James but here's my thesis okay all of this, at least in verses two through eighteen, it's all connected. And it's all connected by this really neat play on words in the Greek language. Okay, so let's go back to verse two in chapter one. It says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. That word for trials there is parasmas. Uh, actually it's parasmois, but you don't care about that. It's based on a noun that's pronounced perasmas. And then in verse 12, it says, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Again, perasmas. So in verse 12, it's not this unattached blessing divorced from any context, but rather it's the bookend to James's entire argument thus far from verses 2 through 12. He's writing it as an encouragement to the Jewish Christians who are facing financial hardships. Well, worse, uh, who are being exploited or facing an economic injustice by the rich, Uh, and he's telling them to keep going, to persevere, to endure, to stand the test, because when they do, they will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, this is a little bit different because earlier in the book, James was encouraging readers to consider trials as joy because they were being formed by them. uh, For James, early on in the book, it's about character development. It's about spiritual formation. Uh, the, the folks that were facing this economic exploitation, they were maturing. They were being completed. They were becoming like Jesus if they were able to look through their trial to the, the end result of their maturation. That was the source of their joy. When they looked through their circumstances, what they saw on the other end was something like this spiritual formation to being more and more like Jesus. Now, I have said this A number of times, and I will say it again, that does not mean that God was intentionally placing these trials in the lives of James's audience or in our lives in order for this maturation to happen just think about your own lives. You've gone through some really terrible situations and I will not say to you, yeah, but God did that on purpose to make you who you are today. I I don't believe that. I don't think that that sells well. I don't think that's good counsel. The last thing you want to hear when you are in a funeral procession uh, line is to have someone say to those who are grieving, "Ah, man, I know this is really hard, but think about it this way. God is, is helping you to become who you are meant to be. Get that out of here. That, first of all, it's bad theology. And second of all, it's not helpful in any way, shape, or form. When we think that God is placing all of these things into our lives, that makes God the author of any sort of atrocity. And for some folks, they have rightly walked away from the faith because that is the counsel they have received. That's not what's happening here. Again, this is God squeezing good out of the bad that maybe God didn't intend in the first place. The bad that just happens because we have human bodies that break down because we live in a world with other human beings who... um, are sinful and make decisions. And when we grieve, God is grieving with us. God is not necessarily placing these things into our lives to help us to mature or to teach us something about ourselves. Okay, Now, in verse 12, the the source of the audience's joy, it shifts a bit. Remember, in the beginning, it was there's a process. If you can look through this situation to see Uh, a maturation and a completeness of becoming like Jesus if you're looking through the situation to see that. That's the source of your joy. But in verse 12, the source of the joy is um, the result that we will receive the crown of life. It's not just character formation that's happening. This is all actually going somewhere. And James says this crown of life is promised to those who love the Lord. You could also say it's promised to those who act wisely, who pursue justice and peace and love. Now, there's a few things that we can say about verse 12 here. The first thing that we can say is there is a future aspect to this blessing, this crown of life that that we will receive. There's a future aspect to it. New Testament scholar Scott McKnight writes, it's not so much that life on earth is abandoned, for James clearly does not permit such exclusiveness or withdrawal, But that fullness and final justice await the follower of Jesus in the kingdom of God. There's a a future aspect to this, but it's not, don't worry, we're all going to float off to heaven someday, and all of the things that have happened to you are just going to be swept under the rug because you'll be in a, quote, better place. That's not the hope here. Uh, James is saying justice will happen. Restoration will happen. Redemption to its full degree will happen. None of these things that have hurt you can just be swept under the rug and not dealt with. As I was preaching this passage last night, I, I talked about how sometimes when we go to Walmart for example we see people that have wronged us that have hurt us and perhaps we just dive into the aisle opposite so that we don't have to see them now Scott McKnight in another book I, I'm forgive me for piggybacking off of Scott McKnight so much here but in a different book he kind of thinks about what it might look like in our first couple of hours of of heaven. And again, don't think of this as a disembodied sort of we float off into the the nether world and we're in this place with streets of gold. That's not what he's saying here. But if heaven is to be heaven, whatever that means, real reconciliation will have to take place. Because it can't be heaven if we're still diving into other aisles, trying to avoid the people that have hurt us it must be dealt with for heaven to be heaven, for justice to take place, for restoration and reconciliation to really happen. that that must um, take place in, in some meaningful way. And this is what James is, is saying here. there's a future aspect to this, but it's not just we sweep everything under the under the rug and we wait for it to happen. No, James is saying uh, that if we're going to hope about this crown of life, there's real justice and real restoration that will be enacted in some meaningful way, even if we don't experience it here and now. The second thing we can say about this is uh, there's also an aspect where the blessing is, is in fact, right in this moment. Note, it says, blessed is anyone who endures the trial. So it's almost as if James is saying, like, there's something that's happening here, and it's possible for you to endure that to the end and in so doing receive the crown of life that might not be experienced to its full, but is experienced right now. The fancy word for this is inaugurated. And if you've spent any amount of time with me or at TRP, you've heard this word before. This, this inaugurated eschatology is a super fancy word. But the crown of life, it can be experienced now, though perhaps not in its fullness. We get a taste. We get um, a glimpse. We get Something that allows us to experience the end in the present. The third thing about this verse twelve that I think we should note is there's a focus on love, and this is part of the James um, James's reliance on a Jesus ethic. Uh, this Jesus ethic that's informing James the sage in his work. So. A couple of weeks ago, I was doing a kid lesson, and I was talking to them about the Jewish prayer called the Shema. It's called the Shema because the first word of the prayer is Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, which translates, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This passage goes on to say, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength. Uh, Some New Testament Authors will will add different parts of our bodies to this, that we're supposed to invest everything we have into loving God. Uh, the command or, or the prayer, then it goes on to give commands to the people of Israel. It says these commands that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Now just think about this. This is linked with the Shema. So some people would say that not only the commands that are following In the book of Deuteronomy, this is in Deuteronomy chapter 6, but the Shema as well in this prayer that that people are to love the Lord your God with everything that you have, these are to be taught, these are to be instructed, these are to be internalized, Uh, these are things that you are to talk about when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Some people would say that, that at, at least twice a day, then in the morning and in the evening, you are to be reciting the Shema, saying these things over and over, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and uh, we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. That This is something that, that, that the Jewish community has done, and and is doing. Uh, Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Also write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So so whenever you're entering into a doorway, you are praying either to yourself or out loud the Shema. You are praying this prayer. This is really influential and important. uh, Legislation would be a, a bad word here, but a practice that is that has formed the Jewish community. The Shema was and continues to be of massive importance. And Jesus, interestingly enough, he adds to this command. He adds to the Shema. In Mark's version of the story, there's a teacher of the law, and he is listening to Jesus debating with some other people in the crowd, and uh, he asks this question, Of all the commandments, Jesus, which is the most important? And Jesus says the most important one is... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the Shema. But then Jesus says, the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So it almost becomes now when you go through the doorframe, you're not just saying the Shema, but you're saying the Shema and this piece of teaching from the book of Leviticus that Jesus is lumping in with love God and love neighbor. This is why so many churches have this as their mission statement, love God, love your neighbor, because of what Jesus has said here, but it's rooted in um, a a fundamental Jewish commitment to, to the Shema, to having this prayer form who they are, and Jesus extends it a bit, And James picks up on this because later in the book, uh, James specifies the influence that Jesus has had on him by saying, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, which James defines as love your neighbor as yourself, James says you are doing right if you keep that. So what James seems to be saying in verse 12 is this, in your trials, persevere, keep going, endure, enact wisdom, and also love God, love your neighbor, love like Jesus loves. Now, we are not facing economic exploitation, but I think there is something here for us, particularly in how we handle our testings, our trials, whatever they might be, if they are related to COVID, if they are related to the school system, if they are related to your everyday life and how it seems to be very different than it was six or seven months ago. If your relationships have fractured because of political division, because of the the different ways that you are handling COVID, because of all of the differences now in our world, whatever trial you might be facing, I think there's something for us. Now, here's what I've been seeing as and a, a mildly objective third party kind of overseeing what happens in, I'm specifically referring to the TRP community. We probably are not considering our current circumstances as an occasion for shaping and molding and forming. I don't believe that many of us are looking through this trial to this process and considering it as joy. And that is a bit problematic. What what James is instructing us here is to remember uh what our trials might be teaching us and it is also encouraging us to respond in a way that demonstrates the love of Jesus again this this gets heightened as we continue as we continue on and again in verse 2 it says consider it pure joy my brothers and sisters whenever you face trials perasmas and then in verse 12, blessed is one who perseveres under parasmas. It's this bookends, but it's also connected to what comes next. So in verse 13, what we read from the NIV, it says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. So why in the world does James shift now into this seemingly random teaching on temptation? Again, some people would say it's because the book of James is Random. That's what it is. It's just a collection, a compilation of wisdom sayings that may or may not really go together in any meaningful way. So they kind of take this verse or these couple of verses as a standalone teaching on temptation. But check this out. This is where our, our Greek uh, knowledge is going to come into play here, and we're going to have to play the role of a biblical interpreter. In the Greek, it says, when tempted, and the word there, it's a verb, but it's from the same word family as parasmas. When tempted, parasmas, no one should say God is tempting parasmas, for God cannot be tempted, parasmas, by evil, nor does he tempt, parasmas, anyone else. Now, here's something I didn't tell you about this word and this word group. It can be translated as testing, Or it can be translated as temptation. So we have some decisions to make, and context is the guide. The word does not mean both things. That is not how it works, which is one of my big frustrations with the amplified version of the Bible. So it it will use like a, a, a translation, and it'll have one translation, but then it'll have a parentheses next to it with all sorts of different word usages. And some people think that it must mean all the things all at once. That's not how language functions. Anytime you use a word, it's meaning one thing in that moment to communicate well, and this is what's happening here. Now, it could be, like we've seen in the NIV, when tempted, no one should say that God is tempting me. That's a perfectly accurate translation of what's happening in this text, but it could also be this, when tested, That is, when you face these economic exploitations, or for us, when we face whatever it is that we're going through, all the things that we've listed, the school stuff, uh, how to parent our kids in the midst of a pandemic, um, COVID, the the difficulties with our relationships uh, in light of politics or current events or how we are handling the pandemic, any sort of those trials that we now face, when tested with that, no one should say that God is tempting me. And the inference here is tempting me to sin in how I respond to the trial that I'm facing. If we read it in this way, and I think that we should, it's about how the audience is responding to what's going on, and it's linked to what comes before. So we have from verses 2 on through 18, this one sort of tightly wound argument from James about, hey, you've got trials, and, and here are the things that we need to do in the midst of those. We need to ask for wisdom, and we need to count our specific trial, which again, for his audience, is economic exploitation. So We have to think about our uh, situation in poverty as something that will eventually exalt us because the rich will be uh, humiliated. They will be lowered by this. And then he goes on to um, the blessings that we will receive if we withstand the trial. And then he's addressing a very pastoral concern that some people in the midst of their trial, they are beginning to doubt. They're beginning to think, things about God that might not be true. And he goes on to this teaching saying, when you're tested, do not go on to say that this is God's doing, that God is tempting you to respond in in wrong ways. For his audience, the temptation was that they would respond violently, that they would respond harshly, that they would take justice into their own hands and begin to enact god's justice and in so doing be led into sin later on in the book james writes what causes fights and quarrels among you don't they come from your desires that battle within you you desire but you don't have so you kill you covet but you can't get what you want so you quarrel and you fight later on in chapter four brothers and sisters do not slander one another So we see here this killing, quarreling, fighting, slandering, all of these different responses that James would say, that's not how we should approach the situation and circumstance that we find ourselves in. And the temptation to do that is not from God. God is good, James says. And he sort of implies, and we aren't good. I don't want us to take that really too far here as if we're dumping... You know, ash on our heads and we should be in a corner somewhere lamenting this fact. But James is relying on traditional Jewish teaching by arguing that people are tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. This is a Jewish traditional teaching that refers to the evil inclination of people. When faced with temptation, we can say that God is doing it or the devil is doing it or we are doing it ourselves. And within the Jewish community, there seemed to be some kind of, um, combination of the latter two. There, God's not the one doing it, but perhaps there might be something about like this, uh, a devil influencing us. I don't want us to take that too far either. Uh, but here in, in James, he says, this is our own thing. Uh, It happens when we're dragged away by our own evil desires and enticed, and then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full-grown, gives birth to death. God is not doing this to us. We're doing this to ourselves. So for James, at the heart of this, there is is this deep pastoral concern. In fact, James says, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters, because apparently some folks in the community had begun to think that God is not good— that God cannot be trusted, that God was inflicting trials and testings upon the people, that God changes. And I wonder how dissimilar we are from this community. When we face difficulties, do our commitments change? Do we begin to doubt? Do we alter God's character? Do we stir up dissension? Do we sin? Uh, Again, our, our situation is not the same. But has our situation that we're facing right here in this present moment, has it gotten the best of us? Has it informed our responses? James concludes by saying, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. In fact, he chose us to, to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Now, there's a lot hanging on this this last verse in this section. Eugene Peterson translates it this way. He brought us to life using the true capital W word. This is a, a Jesus connection here. He brought us to life through Jesus, and he now shows us off as the crown of all of his creatures. I don't mean to incite guilt or shame, but how are we doing? Have our situations gotten to us? Have they inspired our evil inclinations? Have we forgotten the new life that we've experienced through Jesus? Are we being shown off as the crown of all of God's creatures? I want to be clear here whatever you're facing is real. I don't want to diminish it. Um, in fact, some of the things that we're facing now will take weeks and months, maybe even years to to accept to um, to to properly grieve, to heal from to be restored of but uh, along with James perhaps we can consider finding our stability in knowing that every good and perfect gift is from above. That God does not change like shifting shadows. That God has chosen to give us birth through his son so that we might be a kind of first fruits, that we might be a foretaste, that we might be the image of, of what God wants to do in the entire cosmos, that we can embody restoration and reconciliation in our very lives. So may we today move in that direction. May we move in that direction through the power of the Spirit of God at work within us and through the love of the community that is behind us. In the midst of our uh, disparate, circumstances the things that we are struggling with may we not only receive a foretaste of the crown of life but may we not be tempted to respond in a way that does not demonstrate the love of Jesus to the world around us may we remember that yes we have an opportunity in the midst of these troublesome and tiring and anxiety-ridden moments to be an image of what God intends. And may that inspire us in the days and weeks and months to come.